This is the Infatuation Podcast, a show where we get together to talk about Asian things that we love. This is Curtis, and on today's episode, we'll be talking about the lives and contributions of Asian scientists. Hey everyone, just a quick note, post-recording, for some reason, the audio on this episode came out real crunchy, and I'm not exactly sure why. It might be Zoom, it might be our microphones, it might be something I did. But anyway, we apologize for the kind of staticky sound we have on this episode. We're working on it. Don't worry, we're going to try to get better with every episode, but uh, hopefully the content will make up for the audio quality. But thank you all for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Today, we're going to have a fun little chat about one of my favorite topics. We're going to talk about science. And we've talked a lot about a lot of different things in the last seven months, you know, pop culture stuff. But today, we're actually really going to talk about kind of my day job. We're going to talk about science and Asians' contributions and influence on science. And so that'll be super fun. And I thought it'd be fun to bring along people who actually are scientists. So I brought on two friends. Uh, let's start with Angeline. Angeline, uh, we met last summer. Was it only last summer? It seems, <laughs> seems like three years ago. <laughs> well, it's because it was supposed to be the summer of 2020 and then uh, things got pushed back. But I, I feel like we met that fall. Yeah, that's true. Part, yeah. Okay. So it has been, it's been over a year. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we met, we met, we work, uh, we were doing a summer program with some high school kids here in San Francisco. And Angeline is a scientist with UCSF. She is a second year PhD student in the department of stem cell biology. And so happy afternoon, Angeline. Welcome. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for having me, Curtis. Thanks for giving up Excited your be uh, beautiful sunny afternoon in San Oh, no, no. I, I, I got to do some fun stuff earlier today. So uh, I'm a homebody. Okay. I love being at home. This is a great excuse for me to be like, oh, I'm not free Saturday night. So. <laughs> no, no. The pandemic's great for introverts, man. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you've been having a good, uh, good winter so far, staying COVID free, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. I'm honestly surprised that I haven't gotten COVID at this point. <laughs> me too. Same, <laughs> but- same. You Are know, you going in the lab? Are they, is the lab I open? I am. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm going in the lab. They reopened the lab like a long time. So by the time I started as a first year, it was already open, but it was open at 12.5% capacity and then slowly <laughs> went to 25 and then went to 50%. And then I think it was around the time everyone got vaccinated that they fully opened back to uh-huh. 100%. You know, if there are days where I can work from home, I do, but oftentimes I do have to go in the lab and feed my cells. Yeah, I got to keep them alive. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And we also have Rosanna. Now, I met Rosanna about uh, eight or nine years ago working in a Stanford lab. So I I do these programs where, you know, because teachers have summers off. So they have this program with Stanford where you can go in and do some lab lab work over the summer as a teacher and kind of get your feet wet. So I met Rosanna working in a lab in Stanford and it's a little complicated. So I'm going to let Rosanna explain it to you. So how did you end up in two different labs at Stanford? Uh, so, uh, well, my 
uh, official department was bioengineering, but um, my group was actually doing bacterial biophysics. And um, because of my particular PhD project, I was working between two labs because it was a collaborative effort between Mm. two different labs. And um, uh, one was my biophysics lab, and then it was the plant biology department lab. So that was where I met uh, Curtis. Yeah, yeah. A really long story. <laughs> no, no, it's interesting though. It's fun that they let you do those collaborations. Mm-hmm, yeah. So that's cool. And you've been working at as a senior associate scientist at Twenty Three Me. Mm-hmm. Down here in South San Francisco. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, I started like uh, last March. Ah, I think most people know that company. It's a pretty famous company now. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into your origin stories a little bit. And people can get to know you a little better. Uh, so, Angeline, you were born and raised in San Francisco, or did you move here? So, I was born in Hawaii, uh-huh. and then we moved to San Francisco when I was two. So, I do not remember Hawaii at all, uh-huh. but I don't get to say that I was born and raised here. <laughs> yeah, okay. But I was raised here. I mean, I... Basically. Yeah, I stayed in San Francisco since. And then what what got you into science? So you went to high school here. I did. I went to Lincoln. Um, I think in middle school, I started to really like um, biology. I felt like it just kind of made more sense to me. And then when we were learning (laughs) about genetics, that's when I started to get really fascinated by like how genes control the phenotype or like, you know, the way that we look. Um, and then in high school, I took a biotech class, which, Mm. you know, I know is not common for high schools to have a biotech class. Um, but I think nowadays it's, it's getting more popular, but, you know, I think we're also very lucky. We're in this bubble in the Bay area where I think a lot of high schools here have biotechnology classes, but I imagine some random city, maybe, you know, in the countryside, maybe they wouldn't have a biotech class there. So yeah, I took a biotechnology class and the professor was just like such a good teacher. I learned so much about like genetic disorders. Um, we learned how to pipette in class, which was really cool to learn that at such a young age. And that really piqued my interest in just pursuing science. I realized like this is like my favorite subject in school. So I might as well like I, I just felt like it made sense to then major in it. Um, so then I went to community college and I had the intention, um, I I wanted to transfer to Berkeley because I was like, it's close enough. Um, you know, and at the time, I don't know if Curtis, I'm curious to hear what your students have experienced, Mm. but I feel like growing up in San Francisco, um, there was this pressure to go to a UC or that like the UCs were superior and not just any UC, but UCLA, UC Berkeley, UC San Diego, specific UCs are like top tier. Then there was mid tier UCs. And then there was like bottom tier UCs where it was like, oh, you might as well just go to a state (laughs) school at that point, which is ridiculous that like, you know, there's even a tiering system for colleges because college is college. Um, so anyways, I, I thought I wanted to transfer to Berkeley, but honestly, it was more like I felt pressured to transfer to Berkeley. Like, oh, I, I, I have to transfer to a top school or else like it won't matter. And then as I spent more time at City College and I met more people, 
you know, I found people who were in a similar situation as me where, you know, we grew up low income and our families didn't have money to pay for college. So going to community college was the best option for us to save money before transferring. And then once when I got there, I realized like, you know, I don't feel the need to go to Berkeley to feel like I'm getting a good education. I, I only apply to Estes State. And that's where I noticed all of my friends were doing research. I was like, what, what is this research thing everyone's talking about? <laughs> so, you know, I got into it myself and that's where I met um, my, one of my professors or my PI, Mark, Mark Chan, who works at SF State, uh, runs the lab there. And he was the one who was actually like, just really supportive. You know, I, I knew I liked science. I was pretty sure I wanted to get a graduate degree just because I knew I liked school, but I never imagined doing my PhD. I always thought like, Oh, that's, I'm not good enough. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like that's not for me. Like I'm, why would little old me do a PhD? Like that doesn't make sense. Like no one in my family has gone to college, let alone a PhD. (laughs) So why would I do that? Yeah. You know, I just didn't believe in myself to be honest. And I, felt like my friends who were like, I want to go to PhD. I was like, wow, good for them. They're so smart. I'm just, I'm just maybe going to do my master's and like, you know, call it quit, not quits, but like just pretty much do my master's and then, you know, move on from there. But during my time as an undergrad, I met a lot of supportive people through like summer internships as well as with Mark. And they were just so supportive of, you know, me pursuing a PhD and they I, I, Mark was the one that actually told me like, you can do a PhD if Mm. you want to, you know, you don't have to, but I, I believe in you and you can do it. So that really encouraged me. I was like, Oh, he, he has a PhD and like he went to Stanford for his PhD and he thinks that I can get my PhD. Like, okay. Um, yeah, I did my master's with Mark and we studied, uh, yeast, um, and then during my time at SF State, I took a, a class in developmental biology just to get my credits in. You know, I needed to take a certain number of elective classes. I had a friend who like raved about developmental biology. So I was like, okay, let's see what this is about. I took it and I was like, oh my God, yeah. this is so cool. Like, how do we go from a single cell to, you know, a human being, yeah, like a baby? Yeah. A, an adolescent and then, you know, an, uh, an adult and then like a senior person, like it's, it, it's just blows my mind that yeah. so, like, I have this overall interest in just like how cells make decisions and how they seemingly know what to do. And then when they don't know what to do, that's where we can see like diseases arising or like cancer and where cells, you know, become rogue and start not listening to other cells. And all of that stuff is just, has fascinated me since taking more classes at SF State. So that's kind of how I ended up in this program at UCSF where it's um, developmental and stem cell biology, which was just like the perfect mix of two topics I'm really interested in. And I'm in a lab where we do a little bit of both where, you know, we take our stem cells, we derive them to certain cell types and then study those cell types, or we can take our stem cells and then figure out, okay, I want to get from point A to point B. How do I do that? What do I need to add? How do I mimic what goes on in our body to get to my goal of this cell type? So I feel like I ended up in like the perfect lab. (laughs) Here I am now. No, that's, that's great. Yeah. 
Thanks for sharing, Angelique. Yeah, of course. We're going to, let's talk to Rosanna. So you had a little longer trip getting here to the Bay Area. (laughs) Born in Singapore. Born in Hong Kong, actually. Oh, born in Hong Kong. Yeah. And then uh, when did you move to Singapore? Uh, When I was four. Okay. So one of those born somewhere, but raised mostly Mm -hmm. in Singapore. Yeah. And then high school. What's high school like in Singapore? Is it... uh, is it more rigorous? Is it more focused than we are here in the States? Like, do you almost choose a major in high school or is it still you take a little bit of everything? Um, I would say more of the former because um, starting actually middle school, um, well, your middle school and high school still, uh, system's a little bit different from ours, but starting at 15 years old, you kind of choose your track. Mm. So there's like um, science track, arts track, and economics track so from 15 i was already on the science track and Mm. that went into high school which was 17 18 years old for me um so yeah that's actually really crazy to think about did you know before that even like when you were like a little kid did you know science was going to be something you wanted to do yeah i think from um probably primary uh elementary school uh-huh. Yeah, I, I was always going to be either a doctor or a scientist. <laughs> yeah, my, um, my aspirations growing up was to be a, a uh, Egyptologist, archaeologist, uh-huh. or a marine biologist. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, and that was elementary school. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> I don't even think I knew how to say archaeologist <laughs> in elementary school. I got really, I got a lot into like dinosaurs and like, um fossils and egyptian culture mayan stuff like that because the mummies yeah mummies my dad bought me this encyclopedia uh series um through the you know like the salesman knock on the door and then sell you a bunch of like stuff and my dad was like oh let's buy her all this educational stuff and like i basically read those encyclopedias from like front to back multiple times and like i would be like the nerd in school would bring science books to class uh-huh, to like uh-huh. read during free free hours. Um yeah, it was an interesting time. So you're in high school or what would we call maybe middle school, high school, mm-hmm. and you're you're focused. And then so were you thinking at this point, are you thinking staying in Singapore or moving abroad? Yeah, I, I would say that. By last year of high school, I had thought about moving abroad mm. because um, I personally felt a little bit stifled by the system. Mm. So I wanted to gain more world experience, um, not world, sorry, life experience. I wanted to yeah. see the world. Yeah. One of my other dreams was to be a travel writer and photographer. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, and what was really nice was um, when... I was in high school, the Singapore government started this program called a scholarship program for science. And they would essentially sponsor um, students to go get their bachelor's and PhDs and pay for everything, really. And then only ask for you to return to Singapore after that and um, work uh, a number of years for them in return for the the investment. Obviously, the government had to gain from that because it would be like bringing back talent. Yeah. Um, as they yeah. were building up the uh, industry, 
But that was a really good, op- good opportunity for me because like Angelina came from a low income com- uh, family. There was no way yeah. I was going abroad. Um, so yeah, I, I feel really blessed that I got that opportunity. And you ended up in London, Imperial College London? Mm-hmm. Yeah, going to London was a very conscious choice because I knew I could do bachelor's and PhD. Oh. And I heard that um, PhD was better in America. So I was like, well, then I'll just go to Europe. <laughs> and I really like England. So I was like, oh, I'm just going to go to London. And um, I knew nothing of <laughs> oh, really? like, what the good schools were. <laughs> because like my my parents again like didn't go to college uh-huh. um, yeah, it's like, yeah yeah like no one in my i'm the first college degree holder oh, in my i didn't know that about you guys <laughs> yeah it's crazy um so i basically just went to school fairs and asked around um and i got word that imperial college london was the best engineering school so i'm like okay well i'll just apply <laughs> to that school <laughs> um yeah, and I'm just really lucky that I got in. Yeah, well, I, I have a feeling you're probably pretty good at school. <laughs> so, so you get in and, and you were doing life science or were you doing more physical science? I was doing biomedical engineering. I got oh, wow. a biomedical engineering degree, which was also like, I think I was one of the, I was the third or fourth class um, in the college. Like it was a really new subject. Mm. Um, and... Looking back, it is such a funny story because I, all I knew was I liked physics and I, I liked biology. Uh-huh. Like I was able to take advanced classes in high school and I chose biology and physics, which was a very uncommon combination. Right, right. So I was like, when I was, when I was applying to college, I was, I was kind of asking around, like, uh, how do I do both? Like, mm-hmm. And like 99% of the people told me, why, why would you do yeah, both? choose one or like, the other? <laughs> yeah. But then I met this girl who was like um, at the Johns Hopkins booth and she was like, well, I do bioengineering and you get to do engineering and biology. I was like, that's amazing. (laughs) And that's how I got into bioengineering. Ah. Yeah. 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 So you finish. So you you were going to get a PhD in in England or how did it? How did you end up at Stanford? You ended up at Stanford after that? Um. Well, I wanted to do my PhD in, in the US. So, um, and back then I was with uh, my boyfriend of that time and we wanted, we were doing long distance. So we're like, let's not do long distance anymore. Let's choose a school where we, you can do CS and I can do bioengineering. Okay. So the two schools end up being Stanford and MIT. <sighs> and I chose Stanford because <laughs> when I visited MIT, the weather was horrid. <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. I went to Stanford and, and the, gorgeous, the weather was yeah. amazing. <laughs> it's it's really nice. Yeah. yeah. And and my PhD advisor, whom I interviewed with that day, was amazing as mm, well. So, yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah, fun fun journey. So you're still yeah. kind of journeying, but you went into the private sector. You're working yes. at 23andMe and you're mm-hmm. doing work with antibodies? Correct. Yeah. Um. I be, between private sector and post a uh, PhD, I did a postdoc in Singapore, and then I came back to the US to be with my now fiance. And I previous uh I worked uh first at a ten person company, doing uh antibody discovery and uh production. Yeah. Then um then I switched over to twenty three and me, and now I'm doing antibody engineering. 
mm. which is a little bit different because um, um, after the discovery phase, um, we try to make antibodies better to um, have uh, more enhanced effects in the human body. Ah. Yeah. Neat, neat. And I mean, everyone now is talking about antibodies, you know, antibodies oh, yeah, are yeah. super yeah. important, turns <laughs> out. <laughs> so we talked about your, your guys' journey, your gal's journey, and we wanted to talk about, and I, I think this is one of those things that we've, you know, they talk about now in education is you know, who wrote these textbooks and who's in these textbooks and for 200 years, 400 years, however long we've been writing textbooks, uh, it's mostly written from a Western uh, perspective as well as, you know, American centric or English centric uh, perspective. And so a lot of histories are not being told. And one of, and so we talk about that in history, but we don't talk about it as much in science, you know, in terms of, well, which, which view of science are we teaching students now in, in America? And most of it is European discoveries as well as, you know, the European scientists, American scientists. So I wanted to do a show where we talked about some Asian scientists and there are a lot and they're not necessarily household names. So we may, we may bring up some folks that uh, no one has ever heard of. Well, not no one. But we may bring out some folks that very few people have heard of, but uh, I think that's good. So we're going to talk about some some older folks, and we might talk about some more current or recent discoveries, and then we might talk about some personal. So this easily could be a five-hour show, but we're going to just start to bring up some scientists that that maybe caught our interest. And um, full disclaimer, we had to look some of these up because they're not household names, and they're not necessarily... Uh, names that we knew on the top of our head, but we did a little research. So we came up with some. So let's start with, uh, let's see, Rosanna, you want to go first? Let's talk about a scientist from over 50 years ago, someone that uh, maybe even older, hundreds of years ago. We'll see. So who do you have for us? Rosanna, you have someone you want to share with us? I have Faslur Khan Rahman, huh. who's a structural engineer, who's uh, biggest contribution to architecture and like structural engineering was uh, made in 1963. And his um, design of the tube and tube system uh, for building skyscrapers allowed for like the high skyscrapers that we have today. Uh. Yeah. And um, it's actually really fascinating because the tube and tube system essentially allows the, um, the entire building to act as a cantilever and resist uh, wind stress, uh. which wasn't possible before without compromising floor space. And um, resulting in like a very large space for support. So like his design uh, helped uh, conceptualize like a lot of the skyscrapers that we have today. Wow. So the yeah. tube in tube. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bundle two. Where was he from? Uh, he was born Khan. in what we now call Pakistan. Okay. Mm-hmm. In the... Yeah. In the 60s. But he moved to the U.S., uh, namely Chicago. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So kind of cool. We don't, you know, I, I, I'm going to bring up my uncle later, but yeah, these civil engineers, man, we take a lot of their work for granted because, mm-hmm. you know, we say, oh, look, there's a Salesforce tower. But the stuff that had to go in there so that thing doesn't fall 
around, you know, and the wind blows. Yeah. There's all these things that you don't think, you know, real world stuff. I, I love engineering stuff. I think it's really cool. Yeah. All right. Good one. I'll, I'll go, I'll go with one, Angelina, then we'll come back to you. How about yes, that? Yes. Yeah. I found one in the meantime. Okay. <laughs> good, good. Go first. Uh, I'm going to share. So this is one name that actually is in the textbook. And I remember feeling pretty proud about this when I was studying biology. I was kind of like, hey, that's an Asian name in a textbook. But one thing that they don't tell you, okay, so the name is Okazaki. So anyone who has studied biology, uh, DNA replication, you know of these things called Okazaki fragments. And it basically is the idea that when DNA replicates itself, one of the strands has to kind of go in fragments, kind of going backwards. And, and this... Okazaki discovered that. But one thing you don't know is that they were a husband and wife team. So there was a guy named, let me get the name right, Reiji Okazaki and his wife, uh, Suneko Okazaki. And they worked together. Uh, they were born in the 30s. So actually, uh, Suneko is still alive. She's 88 years old now. But they wow. were a husband and wife team, which is kind of cool. Rosanna worked in a lab with a husband and wife team. <laughs> Oh, yes, I did. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not it's not unheard of. It's not unheard of. But uh, so it's kind of cool when you have a husband and wife. But so all this time I thought Okazaki was a man, which he was, but it was his wife as well. So we have a woman. And I did not know this, that they did work in Arthur Kornberg's lab at Stanford. So speak, speaking of Nobel Prize winners at Stanford. So Arthur Kornberg, famous for his RNA work, RNA polymerase work. Uh, and so they worked in the States for a little bit, but then went back to Japan and they came up with their discovery in what year was it? 1968. And they were famous. So that's named after them. Here's kind of a sad fact is that Reiji died at age 44 mm. from Hiroshima induced leukemia. So he was in Hiroshima or on the outskirts of Hiroshima when the, the atomic bomb was dropped in oh 1945. So yeah, he was 15 years old. So he ended up getting leukemia when he was in his forties and passed away. Wow. So yeah, so, so a, a sad story there, but Suneko kept going and she did research for many years after he, he passed away. And so shout out to uh, Reiji and Suneko Okazaki, one of the few Asian names you'll read in a in a textbook. Uh, well, you know, maybe now there's more, but it's pretty few and far between. So shout out to the Okazakis and their discovery of the Okazaki fragments. All right, Angeline, what do you got? Yeah, what do you got for us here? Yours is such a good one. I really liked. Like, it's not because I always thought it was just some dude, like yeah, a right? Japanese guy. I was like, oh, I recognize that's Japanese. But it's already cool. But it's even cooler when you yeah. find out it's a man and a woman. Exactly. Yeah, it's like a, a wife-husband duo, oh, yeah, which yeah. is pretty cool. Um, yeah, it was really sad because when you first, you know, asked us to come up with scientists, I realized like I didn't learn a lot about Asian scientists yeah. like in high school. Okazaki is that's the fragment. The one, that's like yeah. the only one that I learned and that was in the biotechnology class. So if I had never taken that class and just took regular old biology, yeah, you might they not. don't teach that, you know, it's just, it gets too nitty gritty um, mm -hmm. with teaching. Maybe that AP bio, you would exactly. That. Exactly. Yeah. That's like an AP bio thing you would learn. So it's just kind of sad that it's uh, you know, a lot of these scientists that we focus on tend to be like white European men. 
Um, but anyways, I, thanks to Google, found uh, this Indian woman mm. who was a meteorologist. Her name was Anna Manny. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that last name correctly or Mani. I don't know. Um, she was born in 1918, passed away in 2001. Uh, but she enabled the precise measurement of weather. Um, I don't know what the details of it, but I know that she played a large role in, you know, helping create the device or the, these uh, machines to actually detect the weather and measure, you know, Fahrenheit and Celsius, probably Celsius. Now that I think about <laughs> it. Um, and a fun fact or I guess, I mean, it's fun fact because uh, of Rosanna, she studied these meteorological instruments at Imperial College London. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and um, she excelled in a male-dominated field. Um, she, or she published five research papers and did enough work to earn a PhD dissertation. However, uh, and, and I know this is true for Europe, in order to get your PhD, you have to get your master's first. That's not true in the United States. You can go straight from bachelor's to PhD, but because she didn't have a master's, they didn't award her with her PhD, but mm. that didn't stop her. She continued working and designing on meteorological instruments. Um, she even helped create a device that detects like the ozone and radiation um, and started a company to manufacture these devices. So, you know, we click on our phone to look at the weather and I'm mm -hmm. sure a lot of that has come from the scientist, Anna. So I wanted to, uh, pay some tribute to her. Nice. Um, I have a book recommendation for you guys as well as, uh, mm -hmm. listeners out there. There was a book I read that really fantastic old book about, um, it's called the man who loved China. Mm -hmm. And there was this guy in England, uh, Joseph Needham. And he loved China. He just loved the language. He loved the, the written language and the spoken language. And he, he lived in the early 1900s and he went to, to China and he realized how many great inventions and scientific discoveries had come, uh, had China had made. And he, he wrote a, a real uh, definitive work on all the, the discoveries, you know, like a, a Geiger counter as well as a seismograph, you know, he came up with people in China were, were doing all these things. And then, you know, for political and cultural reasons that China kind of took a step backwards in the 1900s and, you know, didn't keep going forward with all their inventions. And so he, the story, the book I read, the man who loved China is written by Simon Winchester, who's just a, a great, you know, nonfiction writer, but I, I recommend that to anyone who's interested in knowing a little bit more about, you know, China, as well as uh, this guy, Joseph Needham, who, who documented a lot of the discoveries that China had made in the 15, 16, 1700s, you know, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years before even some of these things were invented in the West. So kind of an interesting book about a guy who wrote a book about China. Mm. Definitely recommend that mm. to you. All right, so we're going to, so good ones, guys. We're going to go back to maybe a little more current. Um, so let's talk about someone maybe in the last 50 years or 40 or 50 years. Um, let's see. Who wants to go first? Uh, Rosanna, you want to go first again? 
Sure. Yeah, I wanted to highlight a uh, female scientist this time. Her name is Flossie Wong Stahl. Hope I didn't butcher her name. Um, but she has been instrumentative in a, a lot of um, retrovirus research. Uh. Yeah, her first contribution, uh, her first big contribution, among others, was to prove definitively that the human T lymphotrophic virus can cause cancer. Oh. Counter to um, a lot of uh, scientific um, thinking to that time. So, um, yeah, the, that was her first big uh, breakthrough. And then uh, when HIV came about, uh, she was the first to clone HIV virus and determined that HIV is the cause of AIDS, which we know that um, is an uh, epidemic and um, a lot of people suffer from it. And in addition to finding the cause for AIDS, she also um, discovered molecular evidence of microvariation in HIV, which now allowed um, for the use of drug cocktails to manage uh, AIDS as a disease. Oh, wow. Yeah, and she also helped to um, design some of uh, the, the blood tests for HIV detection as well. So this is in the 1980s? Uh, yeah, 1985 oh, okay. for the HIV research. Do you know where she was doing her research? She was in NCI, National Cancer Institute. Uh, MD is what? Maryland. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of related to, it's very close to DC. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, she was in Maryland, but she was uh, Chinese. Okay. Born in Guangzhou. Guangzhou. All right. So Fossi Wong Stahl, a virologist. Mm -hmm. Nice. Uh, and those. Those folks are rock stars right now, right? Anyone who's working on viruses right now, man. And, and you know, Irrelevant. yeah, you know, you guys are you guys are not old enough, but I, you know, I, I grew up in the the seventies and the eighties, and so I I remember this mystery disease hitting San Francisco in the eighties, oh. and it was just like, what is this thing? And we knew nothing about it, you yeah. know, and yeah. and uh, it was another case where it was like we were making you know, even very educated scientific people were making statements that now we know we're totally wrong you know yeah. and they're just and that's a, that's the nature of science is that you sometimes you base it on what you understand but that can change you know and so mm -hmm. flashback to 2019 2020 when information was coming out and people were making statements and and so there was a little bit yeah. of distrust of science where it was like hey didn't you just say we didn't need to wear masks and mm -hmm. now we need to wear masks and but you know that's good that we learned that's good sometimes it's good that we're wrong because you can rule out stuff so yeah so hiv was another one of those case studies where it's like okay here's a mystery virus and it took science a lot longer than it did now without the help of supercomputers and all the research that we had mm -hmm. from these early virologists we would never have a vaccine in nine months that's <laughs> so impossible yeah. to have a vaccine in nine ten months like that's ridiculous and the fact that we did that um you know yay scientists so that that's a good one all right i'm gonna you know on the theme of uh covid <laughs> i'm gonna talk about uh, a Taiwanese-born scientist named Peter Tsai, and he came to the U.S. in the 80s and started working at Kansas State University, got a doctorate in material science, 
And he has, I think he has like 20 patents and he's got some stuff and he, he did a lot of work with this material that is called electrostatic. So it has, it is attractive to both positive and negative charges. And so things floating around can stick to it. And he took this material and put it into a mask called the N95 mask. Yeah. Ever heard of those? Yeah. Right. <laughs> now, I mean, three years ago, only maybe painters and construction workers knew about N95, but N95 is, is a high level mask that is not just a filter, but it is an electrostatic filter. So things that have any kind of charge will stick to it. So the 95 comes from the fact that 95% of stuff gets stuck to it. And so now it's the, it's the material that we see. You, you probably all own a little bit of N95 material. And so he was the one who was credited with inventing this mask in the, believe it was the eighties. And then he came out of retirement in 2020 to continue to work on it, uh, ways to decontaminate it so that you don't have to keep re you know, they are quote unquote disposable, but, uh, if there are ways that you can recycle it, it would save us from having to make so many and reduce shortages and stuff like that. So he, he kind of came out of retirement to continue to work on that. So hats off to you, Peter Sai, for making a mask to keep us as safe as possible. You're never a hundred percent safe, but yeah, the N95 mask, Taiwanese scientist, Peter Tsai. All right, Angelina, nice. you got one for us? Yes, I do. So I have uh, Shinya Yamanaka is the scientist that I chose, uh -huh. um, Nobel prize winner in 2012. And I chose him because I work with stem cells and he played a major role in finding these four genes that can basically induce stem cells from any somatic cell type. So any, mm. like, not the outer skin layer, but maybe like a little deeper, like muscle tissue. Um, I've actually never created or like made my own pluripotent stem cell, but I know scientists who have like, I don't know, taken a chunk of them and made stem cells out of it <laughs> and like yeah. use it. I don't think they're allowed to use it in their lab, but just use it in maybe donate it to science. Uh, once when you have stem cells, you can kind of keep them going in a dish so that you don't have to continually induce them from um, other cell types. But um, yeah, and he actually, he worked at UCSF uh, oh. in his postdoc. So Very I actually cool. didn't know that. Yeah, I, I knew he held like a, an appointment or a professorship at UCSF. But I didn't realize he actually did his postdoc here in San Francisco oh, wow. and uh, was living in the same city as us for, I don't know how long his postdoc was. But after his postdoc, he went back to Japan to become a professor and also run his own lab. And then it was there that he actually created or found these four magical genes that can create stem cells. Wow. So yeah, really big uh, person in at least my field, for sure. One of the most common trivia question is what are the four Yamanaka factors? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like, so, so yeah, we have that in our, like when we do recruitment, um, when we have retreats in our program, I feel like that's almost always a trivia question. So <laughs> yeah. And he was also in San Francisco at UCSF, which is pretty cool, but now yeah. he's, he stays in Japan. Love the Bay Area connection. Yeah. Look up Yamanaka factors. <laughs> yeah, I know. I always forget them. I'm like, Oct 4, Socks 2, and then I never remember the other two. <laughs>
but they are KLF. KLF4. Yeah, and scenic four factors. Nice. All right. I'm going to bring it home on this section, unless you guys have another one. I'm going to bring it home with the 2021 Nobel Prize winner in physics. Uh, he was on a team with Klaus Hasselmann and Giorgio Parisi. But I'm going to talk about Syokuro Manabe uh, out of Japan. Um, and he, this is amazing that these guys worked on this for so long. But he started doing work with the climate and changes in the climate uh, in the 60s. And they did, they got, they, he made models of the atmosphere and he developed just ways of looking at the atmosphere that no one had ever done before. And they started to notice, hey, man, things are starting to change a little bit with the concentration of carbon dioxide. And so he and these other guys were studying this for decades and monitoring this change. And so he just got the Nobel Prize this year. Well, 2021, the last round of Nobel Prizes, got it for his work in for the last four decades on the atmosphere and that the way the things that he came up with are ways that we study the climate now. And I, you know, I'm not that old, but going back to the sixties, no one even thought that, Hey, what people do in Beijing matters over here in Santa Cruz, you know, or that something someone does in Russia would have an effect in Australia. And now we know, Hey man, this planet is smaller than we realized and the atmosphere belongs to everyone and that what we do with it is not a country or a national thing. It is a global thing. And so his models and his research really kind of opened the door for us to think about, Hey, you know, we need to do something on a global level. This climate is changing and it's due to what we're doing. Okay. I know that not everyone out there believes in this stuff, but the data is there. So the data is there that he has shown, he and his partners have shown that, yeah, we're, we're changing, you know, and that's why you have to do it for 40 years, even in the last 40 years, let alone the last 150 years, you know, we have made an impact on this thing that we all need to survive. And so uh, hats off to him. I think it's pretty cool that uh, he is part of this. I, I, let me see how old he is. He is, 90 years old, born in 1931. So I'm glad oh he glad he lived long enough to get the prize and you know all of this hard work. He's gotten many other prizes in his lifetime, but yeah, you know, top it off when you it's a good you you've had a good run when you hit 90 and you get a Nobel Prize. So that's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So Sukuro Manabe. So Suki, thanks, bud, mm-hmm. <laughs> for all you did for us. All right, so we've talked about some folks in the past, um, way in the past, and then maybe in the more recent past. But let's talk on a personal level, and I think we might have touched on these people a little bit already, but I wanted you guys to think about your life, and maybe was there an Asian scientist somewhere on your journey that had a a real positive, you know, because I'm a high school teacher, so I'm hoping that um, somewhere along the line, uh, one or two kids might be inspired by what we do in the classroom. Uh, so in your lives, do you, can you think of anyone who had an impact on you in your journey? 
um, as an Asian scientist? Uh, yeah, I can go first. Um, I, I mentioned mine in the previous episode, which is my PI at SF State or my principal investigator, my professor, my boss, <laughs> whatever you yeah. want to call it. I worked in his lab. Mark Chan uh, at SF State had such a big impact in my life, um, especially because, you know, my mom is very supportive, but she just like you know, had the lack of understanding exactly what I'm doing and why I'm doing what I'm doing. Like explaining what I do to her is really hard. So to have someone who, you know, was an Asian role model for me in science, being someone that I worked directly under was really nice to just, I don't know, like it, it felt familiar. Mm -hmm. It felt comfortable. You know, he believed in me in ways that I didn't believe in myself at first. Um, So that was really impactful. And I really do attribute a lot of my success to having him as a mentor, because, you know, if I didn't cross paths with him and let's say I like, you know, never joined a research lab or just kind of decided that research wasn't for me. I honestly don't know what I would be doing right now. <laughs> it's kind of like one of those intersections at the right time, the right place, right exactly. person. You know, that he exactly. Came into your life. Yeah. And just, you know, I met him in undergrad, joined his lab and then stayed with him for my master's. And also like the lab was just really great. Like he built a really great community yeah. within yeah. the lab as well. Like we were all supportive of each other. He also was really good at not making you feel stupid for asking (laughs) any questions. Like you could seriously, like I felt comfortable asking anything scientific and also, you know, he was also really supportive when it, when it came to more personal stuff like mental health. Yeah. My anxiety got really bad towards the end of my undergrad and Mark was just such a supportive person and you know, I felt like I was disappointing him and my family and everyone. And he reassured me that that wasn't the case. You know, that was my anxiety talking. So yeah, just having someone being so supportive of both my scientific and my personal journey has been really like, I'm just so grateful that I got to meet him and, you know, He's not, it's not like we're far away from each other. I'm hoping to eventually go back to SF state and yeah. I'm sure he's very proud yeah, of you. I think that's, that's one of the, <laughs> that's for me as a teacher, that's one of the best things is when I, I, I hear, or at least someone says, Hey, you know, you had a part in my journey yeah, and that, you know, it was a good time for, it was the right place, the right person, right time, you know, that kind of yeah. paths cross. Yeah. Exactly. Cool. exactly. All right. Rosanna, you got someone that you want to mention? Yeah. Um, my person uh, of significance is uh, Tiffany Bora, who uh, is the wife of my P- PhD advisor. Mm. Um, she has been a mentor to me since at least like midway through my PhD. She affected my life in so many ways because um, we both suffer through imposter syndrome and anxiety. Mm. And having an older woman who's also an Asian helped normalize it a lot. And like I thought that I was the only person who was having trouble um, with my emotional state and mental state Mm. Um, so having that support was really helpful but professionally she was also really helpful because she helped to normalize my career path ever since undergrad I've switched fields with every um, step at every step of my career (laughs) Tiffany basically went through the same thing 
And the fact that she is also successful at it and also she shared her journey with me really helped me feel okay with my many diverse interests and uh-huh. um, helped me realize that, yeah, it's okay to like go pursue what you think is interesting at the time. Mm. Yeah, and she's just an inspiration because like part uh, after her PhD, she was an instructor um, in uh, Egypt oh, wow. where she also studied uh, cat mummy DNA, which <laughs> is like part of my dream. And uh-huh. she also went to the Arctic to help um, do research in <laughs> wow. the first lab. So it's like crazy. It's wow, she, She's like my role model. <laughs> she's living your dreams. She's living mm-hmm. my dream. Um, and like the fact that she did that and she's okay. It, it, it makes life a lot different for, for me because like at the time I just see everyone go through like a singular path. Mm. It's like, okay, you, you, you do the same, uh, you work in the same field forever. But then I, I never did that. And I thought that I was so for lack of a better word, abnormal. Yeah. So having her as my mentor has been really helpful. Yeah. And I think, I think both of you, like just seeing someone that kind of looks like you or has a similar experience, I think makes a difference to a kid, you know, to someone growing up when I mean, you weren't kids when you're in PhD program or master's <laughs> program, but in a way you are, you know, you're in your twenties, your early twenties or late teens, you know, when you go to college and um, just to see someone that looks like you and, and can tell you, Hey, you know, it, it gets better or you're doing okay. You know, you're not an imposter. You belong here. Mm-hmm. That means a lot. You know, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Cool. It makes a really big difference. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think so. I think so. So I, I don't have an experience with a teacher because none of my science teachers growing up were Asian. Oh, no. <laughs> I had some great teachers. I had, I had great teachers in high school and, and before that, but I'm going to go with, uh, the guy that I want to mention as a personal scientist that not necessarily had an influence on me, but I, I want to mention him as my my dad's older brother, Uncle Jimmy. He was a scientist way before it was normal to have Asians in the in the lab. And they grew up in Boulder, uh, Denver, Colorado. Mm-hmm. He worked at uh, CU Boulder. And so he... So my uncle Jimmy, born 19, I think it's 28. So a while ago, he's, he's passed on since. But uh, so they, my, my dad's family was in Denver, Colorado in the 30s and 40s. And so he went to University of Colorado, got his bachelor's degree. But before that, he had to go to the army during World War II. So he went and fought. In, well, he was uh, on the Army Corps of Engineers, and so he was in the Army, Did the was a, is a veteran of World War II, and then came back and got his bachelor's in civil engineering, and he was, he was amazing. My, my dad, you know, who has a background in, in oral medicine, and, you know, he's he's accomplished scientist himself, but my dad, without hesitation, will say that Jimmy was the smartest one in the family. <laughs> Cause he got his high school diploma when he was like 16. And so he was really young and really, really bright. And he came back, got his engineering degree and then got a master's degree and then got his PhD in engineering. Uh, and then he started teaching at university of Colorado in Boulder and won several awards. And his thing was also reinforced concrete. So he was another one of those guys who has 75 publications on concrete. So if you look up, James Chin, concrete, his, his papers will come up. So 
he was way ahead of his time. And and some some sad stories is he was um, he was a senior class president at his high school in in Denver, and they had their graduation party at a swimming pool, but it was a whites only swimming pool, so he couldn't go to the party because he was oh my god he was not white. Yeah, I know this is you know in in my family's lifetime this is the way yeah. it was in America, right? Yeah. And even when he was in the army, he was thinking he would stay in the army and work for the army Corps of engineers. And they, they told him, you know, you're not going to get far as an Asian male in this army. And so he, they said, well, you should probably go back to college. Oh. So he went back to college and, and he got his degrees and then he, he did really well in the department of engineering. He won several awards and um, passed away young. He, he passed away really young. So I barely remember him. You know, because one, he lived over there, and two, you know, he passed away when I was a young young kid. So shout out to Jimmy Chin of Colorado. Uh, my cousins helped me get do some of this research because I wouldn't have been able to find this stuff on my own. But yeah, back in the day when it wasn't super common to see uh, Asian in the lab or Asian publishing papers or giving um, you know presentations at conferences, my my uncle was doing that. So shout out to him. So shout out to all of y'all out there who are Asian scientists who are influencing people around you. Uh, we appreciate you and the work that you do. Thank you guys for chatting with me. Hopefully everyone out there learned about at least one scientist you hadn't heard of before. And, you know, there are literally thousands more out there. Mm -hmm. So if you have a scientist that you want to tell us about, maybe yourself, that's fine. Let us know. Write to us uh, at infatuationpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of, uh, you know, if you know anyone out there that is doing something great in the scientific community or your own story, that would be great to let us know. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook at The Infatuation Podcast. Uh, if you would be so kind as to leave a review, that would be great on Apple Podcasts or at least a rating on Apple or Spotify. You can leave ratings now as well. So uh, thank you all for listening out there. And thank you to my guests, Angeline and Rosanna. Thanks so much for coming by. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah. My, my pleasure. Good luck in all that you're working on. And it's been fun catching up with you. I haven't seen you either of you for a little while. Yeah. On behalf of Rosanna, Angeline, and myself, we hope that you're all happy, healthy, and safe out there. Stay tuned for more. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.